0: Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming. This
1: week on the Pietist Schoolman podcast, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Purry? Say a
0: prayer, send the word, send the word to beware.
1: Welcome back to the Piatt to Schoolman podcast. I'm your host Chris Garrett, joined again by Sam Mulberry. Sam, we're recording the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. I think we need to start with a little recap because it's been a couple weeks. Um, I know Thanksgiving is kind of a big meal for you when you're one of your favorites. It
0: is. I kind of love it. I kind of love. I love most of the things that are part of the traditional Thanksgiving meal. So,
1: so were you a chef or were you a diner or both?
0: Bit of both. Okay. So, so for my family, we. uh it was it's a small group there's just the seven of us so my wife and i made made that meal but then with my wife's family some of whom are going on this trip so they're probably listening uh that's more um many hands make for light lifting so like everybody brought something so i got to smoke a turkey which is which is the way to once you've had smoked turkey that's kind of the way to go i think so that's better than roasting or frying I think so. Okay, yeah. I, I'm willing to believe it.
1: I'm I would never fry. I'm a little too scared of the deep fry fire possibilities. But roasting turkey to me, like so. So we actually had five Thanksgiving meals. I saw that on Facebook. We had two with my parents were up in town. So one with kind of immediate my brother and his family and them, and then kind of extended Peterson family. Um, something on Katie's side up here that was beef. So it was a break from turkey. But then with Katie's parents in in Iowa. But like, I really love making the Thanksgiving meal. And so I kind of insist on Sunday afternoon. I just want to make a Thanksgiving meal. And the turkey was just an excuse.
0: So is, is there a, is there a, uh, a dish you particularly love or is it the whole is greater than the sum of its parts?
1: I uh, I would just make the stuffing like that'd be a, I've actually had that as a meal unto itself as leftovers twice this week. There's um it's a bread stuffing from America's Test Co- with or, the apple and bacon. Yep, that's Cook's a good one. It's a at, one. you can't go wrong with a pound of bacon, a couple apples, caramelized onion, sage. Like, I love that recipe. Fantastic. Beef. Yeah, so it's really just an excuse to make that once a year. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have a favorite to make or to eat?
0: Uh, my wife family makes a something they call corn mush, which is like a cornbread, corn pudding thing, and We've had other people's versions of it, other families, and it's not good. Mm-hmm. But there's the, – the Berry family, Lindbergh family, like it's exceptional. It's, huh. So it, it goes from being like a – I guess we should have that to like it's kind of the centerpiece. In so this some is ways. like the like, like cornbread mix with cheese,
1: sour cream.
0: No cheese. Sa- oh, um, okay. Sour cream, butter, yep. cream corn, yep. yeah, and like fried onions on top. Yeah. And it's yeah. – Crazy good. Okay. It's so good. Well, put together like a trip cookbook or it's something. It's actually fitting that we're talking about food because this this
1: location's a little culinary. This is going to be, a, I, I think, meals we threw on to get a fourth M. Um, for the other cities, that's not so important. We're actually going to lead off with meals here because we are halfway through our travelogue. are talking through our both January with students, June next year with adults. We're up to 20. Uh, I think we're pretty set to go. Um, so we've been to London we've been to the Western Front now it's time to go to Paris. Mm-hmm. Would you say
0: paris uh where does it rank in terms of world capitals for you like- see this is
1: this is really hard like i I actually think I'd have to say London is my favorite world capital
0: really but okay.
1: I like my heart is with paris like paris to me is is the capital of humanity or at least the capital of europe and mm-hmm. i I've spent a fair amount of time in paris and like, I feel more uncomfortable in Paris than I do in London, but I still think I love Paris more than London. But, like, I mean, if I actually had to live somewhere, I'd probably pick London.
0: Sure, and that, I would but say that's that that's too, but that's, visiting, that's because right? of language, though. But I think in terms of, language is my fault, mm-hmm. you know, not Paris's fault. And to me, Paris is the, is the capital. Well, and, like,
1: I mean, the difference
0: would be... Of the places I've been. So, like, right. I've never been to Tokyo. Yep. I've never, there's all kinds of places I've never been to, but Paris, yep. Paris is it. You it know.
1: is. And, like, I think... I, like My favorite meal, actually, we'll talk about meals in a sec. My favorite that I won't talk about was a home-cooked meal with um, a sister of a friend. And if I could actually, like, seeing how people live in Paris, like um, if I could just, like, be mentored by them for a few months, I think I'd figure Paris out, and I'd love it. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a place I'd love to visit. Oddly, though, it's not really a place our students have loved to visit. Like As we've asked them on previous tours, it usually is is at the bottom of the list, and we actually shortened our stay in Paris by one day, partly to make room for Normandy, but partly because I think students don't love being there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's partly the language thing that you've alluded to. What it's very what, big to it's big, yeah. It's yeah. kind of sprawling,
0: and yeah, and I and I feel like, and part of this is language. I feel like the metro confuses them more than the London Underground, yeah. even though once you get the hang of it, it's not it makes that makes sense. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It also feels like. London feels far cleaner. Yeah. Um and more like your Disney version of London. Yes. Like like the, the the like imaginary London and the um, and the real London are far closer than like the imaginary Paris and the real Paris, mm-hmm. I think is part of it. So London, uh, so Paris feels a little dirtier but not in a bad way. Like actually I actually I I embrace and love all of those things. Oh, yeah. And and actually to me like when you're in there's certain spots in Paris that are Are genuinely just magical to be in. So, yeah.
1: I think, I mean, what we told students, like, you'll be more conscious of cultural difference. I mean, I think they'll, because I think you're right. Several of them will say it's dirtier, right? And I think that's not an objective assessment. I think that's more a kind of, it's revealing of some of our assumptions about what life looks like. And partly that we have a lot of suburban kids going on this trip, Right. right? Like, they're not used to cities generally. But all that said, I'm thrilled to go back to Paris, and I'm really excited to go to Paris in June and not in January. Yes. Like, it's fine in January, but, like, you get slush, and, I mean, it, it's a wintry kind of city in January. I've been in Paris in May. I've never actually been there in June, but if I've, it's at all, like, late May, it's a wonderful place I've been in be.
0: July, and it was amazing, yeah. so.
1: So, let, let's get right into it. Again, we're going to do our four M's. So, we actually going to have skipped past this with the Western Front, but we'll do, like, what we did with London, talk about our favorite museum. Favorite memorial, favorite masterpiece, broadly construed, and favorite meal, but because it's Paris, I think we need to start with our favorite meal. Certainly. Uh, Because really, I think for us, like at at this point, having done it a few times, it's it's all about the food. Um, So Sam, I'm going to let you start.
0: What's your favorite Paris meal? Uh, My favorite Paris meal is something that I think you and I have had every time we've gone. I have a standard. Yeah. uh, So it... uh, You're going to have to help me out because I I don't have good names for geography in Paris. So what is the name of the street? So there's a uh, pedestrian? uh, Rue Claire. Rue Claire, yes. Um, uh, uh, It was this kind of pedestrian mall. Mm -hmm. Actually, so if we're starting with food, one of the best things I've ever eaten uh, before I'm going to get to the meal, is we were walking down Rue Claire and you bought oranges. Oh, I was going to talk about this. Yes. And they were
1: amazing. In January, the most delicious oranges I've ever had just from a street vendor in the Rue Claire. And is,
0: are they, is it because they're coming from North Africa? Yeah, I that? think
1: Morocco okay. probably is for a lot of uh, a lot of that kind of product. I mean, it's basically like the way California functions for us, Morocco, Spain. I mean, so sometimes Spain, yeah. but I, it might have been Morocco or Tunisia. But the Mediterranean is the source of these yes. foods in January. And
0: I've, the, uh, the only thing I can compare it to is... Uh uh, when I was a student, I went to the Dominican Republic for January and on the beach, there were these guys selling like fresh fruit and that fruit was also mm-hmm. le- amazing like this. So like, I'd never had fruit like that again until we were in Paris. So that was great. Uh, but on Rue Claire, there's a, a restaurant that we go to and we get uh, duck confit or yep. canard confit. Is mm-hmm. that right? Uh, this place is touristy enough. It's just duck confit. Okay. I'm working on the French. So, it's okay. <laughs> um, I'm actually working on French French pronunciation. So like I've learned some of the rules oh, now, great. like how you don't say the last right. Con- Consonant, unless there's a vowel yep. after it, and then you say Usually. it. So, yep. I'm I'm working on it. I'm I'm I will say this is I feel uncomfortable with the language thing because I speak speak Spanish. I took Spanish as a student, so like I can kind of get by, but I but French is real mysterious to me. Yep. So yep. um so yeah, it's um the the duck. I, I I generally like to get duck when I'm in in uh, Munich and Paris and, mm-hmm. and in Europe. So um I like to get meats that we don't normally see on menus here. Right. Uh, and it's just the most. Uh, how would you describe the uh, the duck confit? It's... I mean, like I'm one of those people who are Thanksgiving loves the turkey skin, but mm-hmm.
1: it's nothing like duck confit. Yeah, uh, the reason I like it is I don't like going to restaurants and getting things I know I can make myself. And in theory, I know how to make duck confit. I've read about but it, but there it's is no way, way I would ever to try it. to make it. Like I'll I'll go to Paris to get duck confit. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's I mean it's delectable, right? The, that word was coined for duck confit. is yeah. how I think about it. Wow, this is
0: really going to be hard to do. I'm <laughs> that's this right. and I was so, doing this at ten thirty. Yes. And right, I'll you know, throw 100. some honorable mentions out. I mean, yeah. I think that the, the fruit was great. The other thing in Paris in general is just like baked goods. Yep. So, like, there's you walk around, you look in windows, you see a bakery where the food where the baked goods look amazing, mm-hmm. and they also are going to taste amazing. So mm-hmm. that's that's my wife's favorite thing is to just let's go to a bakery and get some various things. I
1: really don't. Even, I mean, I'm sure there are certain bakeries that are just wonderful, but I I kind of feel like it's like to me, the best meal in Paris is whatever the baguette is and whatever your local boulangerie is. Yes. Like, I mean, I almost, I actually do really believe the best meal is the Parisian baguette. And I love it because it is just flour, salt, yeast, and water. And yet, there's no way I could ever make a baguette like that. And I've tried. And so, like, there's something about that that's just again, you have to be in the place, and it's so simple, but it's really a meal and it's cheap, which mm-hmm. not yeah. all Paris is. Right, like it's subsidized to keep the revolutions from happening. And so, like, I think I like I tell students you should just get a baguette at some point and mm-hmm. get some cheese, and that can be your lunch. Um, if I had to pick like a sit-down meal, um, like I th- we've only had it once, but some yeah, t- I mean, a kind of tour we've done before is you start at, you start at Notre Dame in the middle of the city. And then you walk to, we're going to talk about a Holocaust museum, which is in the Marais. Uh, but there's a little island called the Isle Saint-Louis, after one of uh, France's more devout kings. And so there's a little brasserie, a little restaurant that's just called Isle Saint-Louis. And it's an Alsatian restaurant. And so this is particular to me because I've lived in Alsace more than any other part of France. And it's an interesting cuisine because it basically sounds German. Like they drink beer. And my favorite dish is choucroute garni which is a bed of sauerkraut with onions, boiled potatoes, and then a bunch of different meats and basically sausage and bacon are kind of the staples of this. And so like, it seems like an odd kind of like Parisian best meal, but I like it because it reminds you there really is no such thing as French food. right? right? Like we're, I mean, we do this with all ethnic cuisines, right? But in Paris, you can go get any kind of, I mean, De Gaulle said there are 300 cheeses, right? Well, there are 300 cuisines and I happen to like Alsatian, but what you need to do is figure out what your favorite Mm -hmm. cuisines are and sample them. And I'll add like that home cooked meal I had was, was French Armenian. And so like Paris is also a melting pot. It's a cosmopolitan kind of place and cooks from all over the world go there to learn French cuisine, but they often then apply those techniques to their own context. And, And so like it's why you want to spend a lot of time in Paris Because you need to explore all these different restaurants And try new things And so if you need a place to
0: go Go to the Eau Saint-Louis and get Choukout and, and since we're talking food One more meal tradition <laughs> This could be the whole podcast yes yeah, One more meal tradition that I love um, Is yes. Is and it actually ties into going to the Holocaust Museum because the first time you and I went, oh, right. it was. I mean, as it should be, it's kind of a downer. <laughs> oh yeah, you know. And we were, we were both, and you're like, "Let's go get fondue." <laughs> and so we've done this a lot <laughs> of context. That
1: time. sounds terrible. Yeah, uh,
0: but but like, um, you just need to feel comforted. Yeah, and way. and and so we and the last couple the last couple times we've taken some students with us, and it's just this, you know, it's just cheese fondue and bread, and it's Savoyard fondue. Delightful. They're all over the Latin Quarter. Like
1: I know it's a really touristy <laughs> thing to do, but it. It's really good
0: But you're a tourist if you're listening yeah, to this probably Yeah, that's fine, level, like own yeah. it So yeah.
1: Okay, well obviously we could do a whole meal podcast about Paris Let's move on to something we've done more of On this World War theme podcast And talk about favorite memorial in Paris um, So I'll start here And I'll talk about, again, the Armenians So a real distinctive for me of this trip Is that one of my best friends um, Is a descendant His grandmother was an Armenian refugee so in the middle of World War One, in April 1915, the Ottoman government um, rounds up about 300 Armenian intellectuals. The Armenians were a mostly Christian minority living both in modern-day Turkey and Russia. And so, like there had been pogroms against them for a long time, but World War One unleashes the genocide against the Armenians. And so it starts with those intellectuals, most of whom are executed, and then you got forced marches, and you know, at a minimum half a million, up to one and a half million Armenians die. Those who don't escape, and they mostly come to Paris because you'd had waves of these kind of pogrom with diaspora. And so there were already tens of thousands of Armenians living in industrial cities like Lyon, but especially in Paris. And so one of the things we do on a walking tour is we go to uh, the Armenian Cathedral in Paris, which is just off the Champs-Elysees. It's called the uh, Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Uh, and that really poignantly is a place these refugees would go. And they, that's every Sunday you'd go for worship, but you also go because that's the community and you'd hope to run into your long lost parents or children or spouse or whoever, and eventually realize that they had perished. So one of the refugees who eventually makes it to Paris is a priest named Komatas. I can't remember his full Armenian name, but he's just called Komitas. And he was also a musicologist. And in the middle of this, he was trying to preserve Armenian culture by preserving Armenian songs, mostly. But he was rounded up in 1915, managed to survive, but it was essentially it was a broken man, spent most of his life in asylums, and died in the 1930s. And so the Armenian memorial um, in Paris is kind of just around the corner. It's on the banks of the Seine off the Rue Albert-Premier. It's named after the Belgian king in World War I. And it's a statue of Komatas, has this kind of stark, um, very dark, I forget even what material it is, but this kind of haunting memorial. And so every April, there's a there's a commemorative kind of festival around the Komata statue in Paris. So I, I think it's a real kind of pivotal story that we tell because it grows out of World War One. It's a part of the war we don't get to see firsthand. And so going to Paris is how we learn about Armenia and the Ottoman Empire. But it also clearly points our way towards the last stage of the trip, which is about National Socialism and the
0: Holocaust. And so we'll be talking about Daco on our next podcast. So that's my memorial. So is there – and, and that, af- I mean, obviously has the connection to the First World War. Because what I'm going to say is not a particularly World yep, War I yep. memorial. What would you say is the – is there an essential World War I memorial in Paris? I mean, I mean the Arc de Triomphe,
1: you know famously that's where the is their tomb of the unknown is, and there's an eternal flame, and so that's where Remembrance Day happens in Paris. Um, I mean the actual one if you just want like I mean a kind of sculpture, the one I take students to is by the Trocadero, so it's just across the river from the Eiffel Tower. And it's by a, it's by a metro stop. And so there's a cemetery kind of on the other side of this big wall. In the 1950s, they installed a statue that's to the glory of the French army or armies. Um, now I'm going to forget his name, but the sculptor is, is a wonderful Polish French sculptor. He also worked on the statue of Christ that looks over Rio de Janeiro. So that's his more famous work, but um yeah, I mean, it's got a typically feminine image of France or of Marianne leading the French people, and so it's it's a pretty heroic um, statue. Like I didn't, you know, compared to some of the things we talked about in the last podcast, it's not especially memorable. But if you wanted to go see like a World War One memorial, that'd be a place to go. I mean, actually, what you can do is go to the Armenian Cathedral, and they have an honor roll in the Armenian alphabet of all these Armenian refugee kids who died for France in World War One. So that's also a
0: pretty powerful memorial by itself. All right, so my memorial um, is, the, I guess the actual memorial is just a small plaque. It's just a plaque, right? Yeah, yeah, so like it's the kind of thing that would be easy to miss, um, but it's its my favorite pilgrimage site in Paris. Um, and that is the, the it's not actually, it's, technically it's not the original location of the Shakespeare and Company bookstore, but it's the, it's the second location, but it's the one that would have been in existence um, in the early 1920s um, so, so uh, Sylvia Beach was the woman who ran Shakespeare and Company, and it was uh, this this small bookstore that uh, basically all of the American it was, it's an uh, an English language bookstore. I guess mm-hmm. I need to say that. Um, and it was it was the place where all of the expat writers and artists would kind of go through. So Hemingway, famously in *A movable Feast*, you know he talks about how they're he's there and he's poor. They don't have any money. And he'll go into Shakespeare and Company, and Sylvia Beach will keep giving him books, and he's like, "No, no, I need to pay for these." And she's like, "I know you can't afford them, but you need to read this." So, so she's uh, helping to make taste. I mean, Hemingway's a Nobel Prize ends up being a Nobel Prize winning author, and she's helping to, in the same way that Gertrude Stein is helping to sort of connect artists and and sort of feed artists, uh, both literally but also with. The what they need for their craft, she's doing that and 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 um, kind of curating for Hemingway. Right. Like here's th- here's something you need to read. Um, uh, but for me, I mean, part of the significant things is that is that Shakespeare and Company is also uh, when James Joyce couldn't find anyone to publish Ulysses, mm-hmm. which is his you know one of the monumental works of 20th century literature. Joyce is one of my favorite writers. Uh, Sylvia Beach publishes it, so she publishes it out of Shakespeare and Company. Um, so, and, and, and Ulysses is this very challenging, difficult to read book. That's this, it's one of the great books, uh, like I said, in the 20th century, it's a book that I love. And, um, so, so I like to go there and think about Beach and, um, and Joyce kind of working out of there to put out this book. They also published, um, uh, she also published Finnegan's Wake and famously when the Nazis came through, um, she was arrested because she refused to hand over her last copy of Finnegan's Wake. Um, and then when when the, the allies liberate Paris, um, Hemingway, this is maybe apocryphal, but he claims that that you know, that he was there and he's the one who who um, personally liberated Shakespeare and company from Nazi control. You know, so it's just it be, it's just this sort of so this, the story goes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that they, you need to say that with a lot of these oh, things. Yeah. But but like but it's so it's this right now it's just a, a storefront, right? Mm-hmm. Not a bookstore. Um but it's I love to stand in that location and think about all the people who came through here. now on on the on the river, you know, across from Notre Dame is the current Shakespeare company, which also has all I mean that yeah. so if you're a fan of the Beats or James Baldwin, like it's a really so that's a cool place to go, and that you feel more like you're in right this this but but I actually love this storefront location. and and it it touches on the fact that there's all kinds of hidden histories here, too, that like there are the the things that are famous, but then there are these other places that. Were these really significant locations Well and if we
1: can toot our own horn it, it also points out it, It's nice to have a guide
0: To take care I mean like
1: this is why Someone like we mentioned Dan Taylor before I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure he does things like this but It's why I think one of the best things on our trip Is the walking tour you do that culminates At this plaque right I mean it would Of the expats so Fitzgerald And Hemingway and Pound and Um I mean, you talk about Joyce A little bit too so I mean that's how We build in a World War One connection I mean in a sense these are other kinds of Refugees. I don't want to push right. that too far, but they feel alienated. They're exiles, from, right? You know, yeah, some, some intentionally, yeah. yeah, yeah. And but I love it because you see then a side of Paris that's very different than the kind of touristy Paris, right? And you realize the the, the layers of history in this place. I mean, it's. Yeah. but but you need someone to lead that. It's, right, it would be hard to do just even as a self-guided tour unless we were really knowledgeable about this history, or had a copy of Mouffle Feast. That's with right, you and you know. just looked up a bunch of uh, addresses. Right. So. Okay. Well, let's move on to another thing. Paris is known for museums. Uh, Sam, I think you're up first.
0: Yes, and and I'm just like I did with with uh, with London. I am going to tip my hat and say, okay, the Louvre is like that's the right that's answer, the answer. Right. Yeah. It's. Uh, and that Forbes list I talked about in episode in the first oh, episode, right. the best like museums. this was the number one, yeah. um, and and it should be, and it's yeah. amazing. Although I will say, as an art museum, and the Louvre is more than just an art mm-hmm. museum, but as an art museum, I, I'm actually super intimidated by the mm-hmm. Louvre. It's too big, like it's it's not too big. It's it's hard to like in the same way the British Museum is hard to sort of take all of it in. Mm-hmm. The Louvre is even more so. I right. think there's so much there and there's, there's just masterpieces everywhere Oh, it's exhausting yeah. yeah and it's amazing and you should go to it but the yep. nice thing I, I will say the nice thing about having been to Paris a few times is like I've been to the Louvre twice mm-hmm. so I can go to Paris and not go there and be like that's okay like I last time I think we we went but a couple of the other times we didn't go because we yep. had both been there and so you don't um, it, to me it's so big that that I sometimes avoid it Yeah, <laughs> you know uh, so I don't go every time but there is a museum that I do go to yes. every time uh, and this is also on that Forbes list. This was in the top ten. I forget mm-hmm. if it was six or seven. Um, is the Musée d'Orsay, mm-hmm. which is the great uh, uh, impressionist, post-impressionist museum in Paris. So it's an old train station, um, and it, I'm trying to think. It's just it, masterpieces per square inch is um, is amazing. Like like every there's there's three rooms of Van Gogh paintings, and he's one of my favorite painters. And to be able to you know I living in Minnesota, I go to the Minneapolis Institute of Arts to look at the one that they have yep. and then you go there and you just realize there's there's so much of that and then that's just one of the artists there um, so it is it is, it's a stunning collection and the thing I love about that museum is it's where the Louvre is is intimidating and it's too big, the Musée d'Orsay is so doable. Oh, like yeah. you can you can easily see the whole collection. Yeah, so I always recommend that to students if they feel like okay, I only have two hours, but I want to go to something. I'll say go there. You won't regret it, and you won't feel like I missed everything.
1: No, I mean I think what you probably happen is students will see about as many recognizable I mean paintings they recognize, plus then they'll be drawn in a little bit deeper mm-hmm. because yeah, I I love. Yeah, I mean that would have been my vote if I let you go first. Yes. Um there's I mean, also a
0: great cafe there. There is, yeah.
1: Um I I mean I love it because it's not in a royal palace, it's in a train station. Um I love it because I'm looking up my bookshelf and one of the first books I read in a French history class that I really enjoyed was uh called Olympia, Paris in the Age of Money by Otto Friedrich and Olympia is this famous painting that hangs in the Orsay. Um, what I'll say is uh, A little bit different we've mentioned it before And it's one that I'm sure is not Nearly as visited as either of the two we've mentioned I was tempted to talk about the Musée Cluny Which is the medieval museum yep, that we enjoy.
0: That's my secret one if you've yep. been to Paris a few Times and you haven't been to the Cluny that's a good one And
1: we pointed you towards the Latin Quarter for a lot of things So while you're there stop in the Musée Cluny um, I'll t- So I'll talk about the Memorial de la Shoah this is the Holocaust Museum So it's in the historic Jewish quarter Of Paris it's not Very old um, it kind of is a collection that developed over time. I mean, it does not compare to Yad Vashem. It does not compare to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. But it's if, if you've never seen one, it's pretty deeply affecting. And Paris is an interesting place to study the Holocaust. So we actually usually start, the, if we take students, we kind of start on the other end of the island that Notre Dame is on, is a little memorial to the deportation. It's about it's it's from the De Gaulle era in like 1960-ish or so. It's about all the French who were deported, right? And that was an attempt to grapple with the legacy of resistance and occupation, but it celebrated the French who resisted, and it kind of glided over the fact the French were complicit in killing hundreds of thousands of Jews, not necessarily as many native French Jews, but Paris is a city of refuge, as we've already heard. Lots of European Jews came to Paris before 1940, and the French turned them in, and that's not really addressed very well by the French. And this is one of the the main things French memory has had to grapple with um, since World War II. But there is a Holocaust museum, and so you go through. It's very, I mean, I think it's really well done. It's it's multilingual. You'll get a lot out of it. It's got a big section on uh, the long movie show up by Claude Lanzmann, which was one of the major works of art of the 20th century, really. Um, The thing that I'll never forget is, I almost don't want to tell you because I want you to be surprised, but I think you need to be prepared for it, is the last thing you see is this actually very brightly lit room, and it's just full of pictures of children, and they're all children who perished in the Holocaust. And I don't know if I, I think the first time I saw it was, I think with you, Sam, I don't think I'd seen it on previous trips, and so I don't know if this is 2013 or 15. It was 13, yeah. So, like, my kids were four at that point. And so if I had seen it, like, my earlier trips were as a grad student, like, 1999, 2000. I don't think it would have affected me as much. But to have that be your farewell to a Holocaust museum is pretty staggering, if, if you're a parent of young kids. And I think just probably generally. um. um. And like it's it's full of light and like for Christians light is a source of hope but it's instead it's illuminating despair and tragedy and um, I don't even even now like I don't know how to come to terms with it and it's why I think we both just kind of left feeling just like emptied and cold and. Needing fondue apparently, right. Right. so if you, I mean, I'll mention that because that is off the beaten path a little bit more, and I would guess most tourist guides would steer you there. It's intimidating. You've got to check through security, go in there. You can't take pictures. Like it, it kind of feels like you don't belong. But like, stick with it and go through it, and right. it's free and it's worth spending a couple hours at. Okay, let's conclude then with. I mean, I think this four M's thing was built for Paris. That's right. We're going to conclude with masterpiece. Now it's hard because we've already mentioned the Louvre, the Orsay. Like, so you can take those off the table. Yeah just eliminate those and make it harder for ourselves so again pushing the notion i'm going to talk about film so when i was a grad student um i mean i went to paris a couple of times for my dissertation but mostly i spent like three weeks there it was kind of the end of the french stage my dissertation and i was at the foreign ministry archives and the thing about french archives is you're only allowed to see like five or six boxes and then you're done and what i was doing was kind of a fishing expedition like i'd already been my main archive i was just kind of like Double checking a few things And so I would often be done At like noon Or something And have to like Come up with things to do And I was staying at a hotel In the Latin Quarter And I finally realized The Latin Quarter Is full of these Kind of tiny Decrepit movie theaters And they usually Just have one or two screens They're pretty old They're not comfortable Stadium seating or anything But they run movies All the time And like They'll run newer things too Like um, I think I saw Eyes Wide Shut um, On one of my first visits To Paris Um But what they're really known for is they run older things. And so some of it is older in the sense of like 1980s. Like I saw Terry Gilliam's Brazil in a Latin Quarter theater once. But the best things they do are festivals around certain auteurs. And so my favorite movie experience in Paris was actually watching Grapes of Wrath by John Ford in a Paris theater one afternoon, Mm -hmm. because somehow I'd never seen it and I'd read it, but I'd never seen John Ford's version. It was great. Um, when we've taken students, we've done a Hitchcock film. I think we did Rear Window. window, And then last time, you know, Kubrick is actually kind of the, the, the standby here. There are just a million Kubrick things going on. So we saw Dr. Strange Love with students, um, so like, I, I just kind of assume like one night we'll kind of look and see whatever festival is going on at, and at 9 o'clock just take a bunch of students and, and show them a great movie that they've never seen. It's a tradition, yeah. Because you kind of feel like, well, in a world, of, like all our students have iPads and they're streaming movies on so their downtime. Like, well, why do you have to go pay a few euros to see a 60-year-old movie? But some of those things don't stream. Like, um, I don't even know. The streaming service that does like famous old movies actually just collapsed, Strike. Filmstruck, right? yeah. Strike. It's where, like, if you're in Paris, like this is how they were supposed to be seen, and you're with people who are real film fans, and there's often kind of cool memorabilia around, and there are shops that sell it, and like it's it's kind of a distinct experience of movie going to see a film festival in the Latin Quarter.
0: Right. Well, my masterpiece, Chris, is a church, mm-hmm. um, and Paris is known for for some beautiful, amazing churches. But my you don't mas- really like Notre Dame, right? Though I don't <laughs> like it in comparison to other French churches. Um, but so, but so go to Notre Dame. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, great. yeah Go to uh, sacre Court, That's great. That is. Um, if you like the movie Amelie, you get your Amelie fix. It's Also, you get a cool view of Paris from being up high. I don't, but you should still go to sacre Court. Wow, we need to talk. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the masterpiece, though, is this tiny little chapel uh, called Saint-Chapelle. Mm-hmm. And um, I... The first time I had heard of it is is in a, a piece by uh, American artist Ben Sean. Uh, it was a lecture he gave in Harvard in the nineteen fifties called "The Education of an Artist," and he lists all these things that you should do. and he And one of them is he talks about standing in Saint Chapelle. It's like mm-hmm. as an artist, you should take that in. And so, uh, so i was heard ex- episode three for the Ben Sean reference. That's right. The <laughs> so, um, so. We, my wife and I went uh, for the first time in 2015 to Senchba because it's on the museum pass mm-hmm. that we have. So we got up early and we went in and it's, I knew that it was famous for these stained glass windows. And it's this tiny chapel that was built in, uh, finished in 1246. I think it's Louis the ninth. I think. Does that well, I, like I think is that sound like it Well I think this is St. Louis. This is yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah, the Saint King. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, it was built to house the crown of thorns, the mm-hmm. relic of the crown of thorns. Um and we went in and and i was like wow this is really pretty and amazing i was like but it's not what i expected and then i realized oh you're supposed to go upstairs and i went upstairs and it's maybe the most overwhelming piece of medieval art i've ever seen cuz it's it's just it go it's this small chapel with that's really really it's like, so it's, like, it's french gothic it's really really high you're in a small space with a huge high High arch ceiling and and you're surrounded by these stained glass windows and it it's maybe one of the most beautiful man made things I've ever taken in.
1: I was gonna say I think it's the most beautiful room in the world that I've been to. I mean it's odd as you mentioned that I just kind of had this like image flood back into my head and it makes an interesting kind of pair with what I described in the Holocaust Museum, which is also you know light right. But this is a different kind of light right. I mean it's tall, it's colorful. And it just seems impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, I, don't, I mean, I still don't understand how in the thirteenth century. It's all glass. I don't that. understand. Yeah. It, yeah, but I mean, it's it's transcendent light. Yeah, um, yeah let's go there now, <laughs> please. <laughs> uh, we should add like we've been talking about all these, and you're probably thinking this is impossibly expensive, and like it's pricey to go to Paris. But Sam mentioned the museum card. Like, get the Paris museum pass. Uh, you get it in like two, four, I think maybe six or seven day increments. So kind of depending on what your visit is going to be like. And it's it's admission to all the things we've talked about, plus about 60 other smaller sites and larger sites. Uh, And you just kind of cut to that line, flash your pass, and walk right in. I mean, a lot of security. It's not going to be a quick entrance, any of these places. But, yeah. Wow, this was great. I was really looking forward to Paris, but this really makes me excited to go back. Why do we take a day off the trip? That was
0: stupid. Yeah. It's stupid. I don't know why the students don't love it as much as I do. Well, adults
1: in June, it's going to be the best like 36 hours of the trip. It it's... is going to
0: be fun to strategize. What do you do yep. with your time in Paris? Yep. Yeah, that's
1: right. Uh, you go back is what you do. That's right. Okay. Well, three down, one to go. We'll wrap up our brief fourth season next week as we conclude our World Wars tour in Munich, the birthplace of National Socialism. And at least next to the home of the first Nazi concentration camp. If you're interested in going on this trip, I have to save two spots for my parents, but there are two spots available, and I've pretty much got to start reserving hotels in the next couple weeks, so get in touch with me. Look for Pieta Schumann Travel on Facebook. You can read me right about the World Wars and lots of other topics at my Pieta Schumann blog, and every Tuesday I blog at The Anxious Bench on Patheos. Patheos? Patheos. I should know that by now. The Pietist Golden Podcast can be found at the Live from AC Second Podcast Network and the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garretts. Thanks for listening.